Hello and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by Nualtra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialised and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. Before I start, can I ask you a huge favour? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. In today's debate episode, we'll be discussing the question, do you have to be wealthy to eat well? In the midst of the cost of living crisis, we're keen to find out more about the current state of the UK and consider the impact of rising bills and food costs on food insecurity. We'll also touch base on how we as dietitians and nutrition professionals can help promote a healthier, more sustainable diet that doesn't break the bank. At the end of June, the Broken Plate Report was published, which considers, amongst other things, the affordability of a healthy diet. The figures show that the most deprived fifth of the UK would need to spend a startling 50% of their disposable income on food to have a healthy diet as per the government recommendations. To, dis- to discuss today's debate question, I'm delighted to welcome two experts in the area. The author of the Broken Plate Report and Policy Research Manager at the Food Foundation, Shona Gowdy, is here, alongside the Food Foundation's Senior Business and Investor Engagement Manager, Rebecca Toby. The Food Foundation charity authored the Broken Plate Report and are on a mission to change food policy and business practice to ensure everyone across the UK can afford and access a healthy and sustainable diet. It's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast today. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself a little bit more. Rebecca, let's come to you first. Thanks, Corinne. Um, Great to be here today. Uh, My name is Rebecca. Um, So I joined the Food Foundation uh, right at the start of uh, 2020. So I'm a a registered nutritionist and at the Food Foundation, I um, I lead on our, our work primarily engaging businesses and investors with the shift to a healthier and more sustainable diet um, but sort of thematically that includes all of our projects that have a sort of focus on um, on sustainable and healthy diets including peas please and plating up progress um, and I work with Shona on the on the broken plate report um, so it's really great to be here today um, chatting all things nutrition. Um, And hi, I'm Shona. I'm a registered associate nutritionist. I have a background in clinical nutrition. Um, I joined the Food Foundation in 2019 uh, and have worked on quite a range of projects now, but most recently have been leading on our work on food insecurity and dietary inequalities, um, particularly in the context of the cost of living crisis um, and also our campaigning work on, on children's food. Thanks so much, Shona and Rebecca. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So let's get started with a few quick fire questions to get to know you both a little better. Are you a morning or night person? Who wants to take that one first? We we went through these before the the call, actually, and we we are both 100% morning people. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I struggle really after about (laughs) 7pm. Yeah, definitely an early riser, and I would say 7pm would be would be late for me. So. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. I'm so much more productive in the morning. I just, like, when it gets yeah. to evening, I just want to sit on the sofa. <laughs> exactly. I don't know how people do it. I'm, I'm done. I'm ready for bed, really. <laughs> and what is your favourite dessert? 
Rebecca, do you want to go first with that one? Yeah, I hope this isn't a trick question that I'm not supposed to say sort of fruit platter or something. Um, my favourite dessert, this is a really hard one. It's a bit like choosing your favourite child or something. Um, I mean, I think you can't go wrong with a good tiramisu. Nice. Um, I'm actually not really a dessert person, so oh. this isn't like picking my favourite child for me. But um, I was going to say like a really good like coffee gelato would be mm. the perfect thing. So you can tell we both have caffeine addictions. So. I was going to say, yeah, maybe I should have gone with something coffee. <laughs> nice. I mean, Shona, are you a cheese board person then? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> Okay, and I guess on the subject of coffee, if you could go for coffee with anyone tomorrow, who would it be? Shana, do you want to go first? Um, I think just because Wimbledon's on at the moment, I was thinking in the tennis realm of things, so probably like Andy Murray or Nadal or someone like that. I'd love to chat to them about all things nutrition and sport and everything along those lines. So, yeah, Rebecca? So this is going to make me sound like a really antisocial person, but I've got I've got a little um, one year old daughter. So actually, I'd really like to just have coffee on my own and sit, just sit in silence and rock back and forth. Maybe <laughs> no, um, I'm sort of joking, but um, yeah, no, I, I don't think I am joking. Actually, I think I'd quite like to just go for a coffee on my own and. <laughs> that is strength in silence I think that's a brilliant answer to be honest go for that coffee and, and people watch I love doing that yeah, so there you go. nice I love that well thanks guys that's brilliant so let's move on to the episode questions if okay with you so we're going to start with a Rebecca this question's uh focused to you and then we're going to move to Shona with the second question so the UK's cost of living crisis has been widely discussed in the past year or so but just so that we all start the episode on the same page could you start by defining food security and share a top line overview of the cost of living crisis? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the cost of living crisis has been, I mean, it's dominated all of our work at the Food Foundation, really, for the past sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, and predominantly what this is, is that the cost of living has gone up across the board. Um, so starting with energy prices, which have skyrocketed. Um, and that's had an impact on both households, but also on businesses. So obviously, if you're producing food, you you, you know you need energy, um, and so that's had a knock-on impact sort of across the economy. Um, and that's that's all happened against a backdrop of of a decade really of, of stagnating real wages. Um, and the result is that um, disposable incomes are, are really being squeezed for a huge amount of people. Um, and what we see happening when that happens is that often food budgets really do take the hit. Um, they tend to be less fixed or at least not fixed in the same way that, for example, direct debits might go out for your rent or your energy every month. So they're often the first place that really people look to cut down on. Um, and that's all happening at the same time as food inflation has reached its highest level in about 40 years. Um, so it has started to ease very slightly in the last couple of months, but it is still very high. Um, so last month it was 18.4%. And food price inflation has been outpacing sort of general levels of inflation for quite a few months now. Um, and so all, all that means that, you know, when we talk about the cost of living crisis, what we're talking about is a great number of families either struggling to put food on the table full stop or having to trade down in terms of um, what they're buying to save money. And what we don't want that trading down to do is that it then means trading down in, in health as much as price. 
Um, so I think that's probably how we kick off just by defining um, the cost of living crisis. In terms of food security, um, we use, so Shona will um, give you all the detail, but uh, we've been tracking levels of food insecurity um, in the UK since since the COVID pandemic broke out, actually. So those, those very few, uh, those very first few chaotic weeks. Um, and we, we use a validated um, set of three questions to measure that, that, uh, that basically track um, how easily people can access food, um, whether they have to skip meals or struggling to, to eat. Um, and maybe that's a good point to go to Shona, who's got a better handle on the detail there than I do. Okay, great. Yeah, over to you, Shona. I mean, the Food Foundation works to track food insecurity in the UK, but if you could please elaborate on how the cost of living crisis has impacted food security and how food insecurity has changed in recent years, that would be brilliant. Yeah, definitely. So we started tracking levels of food insecurity at the start of the pandemic. So as you'll probably remember, there were sort of sudden shortages on the shelves because people were panic buying and a lot of people had to start shielding if they had underlying health conditions and they couldn't get to the shops and they couldn't get delivery slots. And um, a lot of people were then unable to work as well because sort of all the out of home sector, a lot of jobs, everything just shut down. So people weren't able to work. A lot of people were put on to furlough. And so um, there was a huge number of people that had their income suddenly drop. And so I think we knew straight away that that food access and affordability was going to be a big issue. Um, and at the time, government weren't, you know, they didn't have a plan in place to sort of, well, A, deal with the pandemic, but specifically look at how it was going to impact um, people in getting the food that they needed. And so we started um, measuring levels of food insecurity and conducting these nationally representative surveys to get a really solid idea of what was happening and how badly people were being affected by food insecurity, who was being affected um, and being able to use that to work out you know, what support was needed and what groups we needed to target that support at to try and sort of help people through the crisis. Um, so when we started tracking those levels at the start of the pandemic, there was this just huge spike in, in food insecurity levels. And, um, you know, it was a really worrying situation. I think at the time, everyone kind of recognised the problem and kind of stepped in, um, government did various things to try and help people access food. And as we kind of emerged from the lockdowns things started to improve a little bit um, but food and security levels were still really high when the cost of living crisis hit we just went straight from one crisis into another crisis and there was no real recovery time for people so we went into the cost of living crisis already on the back foot for a lot of people and so there was no sort of room to absorb those new income shocks those new issues those rising prices and so um, that's why we've seen the cost of living crisis just have such a hard impact on families in terms of food insecurity. Um, so we, our last survey that we conducted was in um, January and we found that 18% of households reported that they'd experienced food insecurity in that month alone. Um, and that was double the levels that we found the same time the year before. So that's such a sharp increase in, in food insecurity levels and has really just gone up in parallel to those food prices rising. Um, and yeah, as Rebecca said, that includes things like people um, not eating despite being hungry or having to skip meals or have smaller meals and even having to go a whole day without eating. So our survey in January indicated that over three million people had gone a whole day without eating in January. Um, so that really tells you how serious the problem 
is and how badly people are being affected. Um, and I think an area that we're particularly concerned about is um, like families with children. So we found that one in four households with children had experienced food insecurity in, in January. And that affects um, approximately four million children living in those households. So, you know, these really show us these really high numbers of people being affected and what a serious issue it is. And that, you know, through this cost of living crisis, those numbers have just gone up and up. And there has just been this complete lack of intervention by government to effectively tackle the problem and make sure people are getting that kind of basic right to food, I suppose. Thank you, Shona. Some of those statistics that you were talking about are quite hard hitting. And as I'm listening to you, it's just so shocking that we're in this situation. And as you say, we're kind of fighting for the government to make to take action. But it's people like you that are lobbying and, and driving positive change. So thank you for sharing a bit of background on that. Jonah, going back to you, the Food Foundation also works to track food prices, which involves analysing an average weekly basket of shopping. Could you please tell us a bit more about this project and the results you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so government tracks um, food price inflation themselves. But what we found with their measurement is that it looks at a selection of products which is not indicative of a typical weekly shop and they don't take health into consideration at all in the selection of those products and so we felt there was this kind of gap in understanding like what is the actual reality that families are facing and what is the health impact of these rising prices and so that's why we started tracking this um basic basket of food um and so we want so basically it tells us how a weekly shop that meets adequate nutritional requirements is being affected by rising uh prices and so the actual products in the basket was um selected based off research that was done by Loughborough University where they held these discussion groups with people to understand what they considered to be a reasonable week of a food shop and um kind of meets a a minimum standard of what we would call a kind of socially acceptable diet. And then we kind of adjusted it to make sure that it really did hit those nutritional requirements. So it doesn't exceed recommendations on um, sugar, salt or saturated fat. And it meets the recommendations on on your five a day, your oily fish recommendations and on fiber as well. Um, and so it's not like the absolute healthiest you can eat that is, you know, the odd packet of biscuit thrown in there as well. But that's part of just being realistic about what people eat. Um, and so we started tracking this basket in April last year. And what we found is it's gone up about 25 percent in that time. So that's, you know, the reality that people are facing when trying to to do a weekly shop is that that's the amount more they're having to to spend. And I think for people on higher incomes, you know, it's like you know everyone likes to complain about food prices but they can actually absorb those costs it's not actually going to affect what they're able to purchase whereas people on lower incomes um that really affects what they can they can buy and they have to cut back on either how much they're buying or quite often on the healthiness of what they're buying as well and uh, we work with a sort of group of people who kind of have lived experience of food insecurity and these issues and that's very much what they tell us is their experiences as well you know they go to the shop each week with the same food budget they had the week before and they just can't buy the same foods that they can and it's noticeable on a week-to-week -week basis because that's how quickly food prices have been have been rising and so we just started tracking this basket to really be able to explain to people that that's what's happening with food prices and that's the reality that people are facing and um really you know call for something to be done to keep those prices at a manageable level for people 
Okay. And Rebecca, do you have, have you seen any sort of changes in behavior in terms of the types of foods that are um, being affected by the cost of living crisis or you know, shopping behaviors? Have they changed? Can you talk to us a little bit more about those trends that you've seen? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, the, the shifts that we've started to see happening. So I think the big one is we've seen this shift into the discounters. So Aldi and Lidl, um, for obvious reasons. Um, and what was really interesting was towards the end of last year, so Kantar track uh, market share of the biggest supermarkets. It's basically like a top 10. <laughs> who's who's at the top? And um, Aldi have now leapfrogged over Morrison's into the big four, um, which I think is really telling in terms of, you know, um, the amount, as Shona mentioned, that consumers are having to, to really shop around to keep stretching their food budget sort of week in, week out. Um, we've also seen a huge rise in the popularity of sort of own label, own brand products, um, which are often, for example, you know, Tesco's own baked beans rather than Heinz baked beans. You know, we, we see families and households looking for those sort of places where they can save um, a little bit of money on, on equivalent products, um, which has also been interesting. Um, I think on that note, tinned food has also done very well over the last few years and um, firstly as a result of COVID and that sort of um, uptick in sales has sort of carried on throughout the cost of living crisis they're obviously a good way to get um, cheap, often cheaper longer shelf life foods um, I think in terms of sort of differences in types of food I think it's you know it's important to sort of note that kind of all food is up so as Shona mentioned, if you look at the cost of a kind of healthier basket, that's up 25%. If you look at the government's um, consumer price index, which is sort of less healthy, but kind of common, commonly purchased basket of items, that's up 18.4%. So prices really are very high. And I think even though food inflation has started to ease a little, that it's kind of quite a confusing one. So I'd struggle to wrap my head around it, but that doesn't mean that prices are going down. It just means they're rising less quickly if that makes sense so we've still got quite a long well at least a good another few months i think of you know rising food price inflation um i think one category that's been particularly affected is um oils and fats and that's partly a knock-on effect of the ukraine russia war because a huge amount of the sort of sunflower vegetable oils that we typically import come from the ukraine or russia so that's had a real knock-on impact and if you're sort of thinking they're thinking, oh, well, you know, sunflower oil, I don't really use that that often. I, I think that's the kind of ingredient that is in a lot of other composite foods, for example, ready meals, um, vegetable spreads. So obviously Lurpak, everybody was outraged at the price price rise on that the other year. Um, I think it was towards the end of last year. That's all kind of as a result of, of the vegetable oil category, um, seeing these kind of sharp increases. Um, but what is really concerning as well is that we know um, kind of essentials have gone up um, quite a lot. So, for example, milk, cheese and eggs, according to the last um, government CPI data, were up 27% um, in the last year. Uh, vegetables also up almost 20%. So we see, you know, much higher price rises for those sorts of food categories than, for example, sugar and confectionery, what we'd probably describe as being more sort of discretionary products, which have still increased in price, but at less of a kind of uh, sharp rise. Have you seen any change in consumption of fruit and vegetables? So are people buying less because of the cost of living crisis? Yeah, so I think... 
I should sort of point out that we don't yet have any really great dietary intake data on this, but what we can do is use sort of sales data and surveys as a bit of a proxy. Um, and definitely the, the trend that's coming through is that um, what we saw happen in 2008, which was the last time we had a food price crisis, and we know that intake of, of um, well, sales of veg dropped then, it does look as though the same thing is happening now. Um, so just to give you one example, so we run a program at the Food Foundation called Peas Please, uh, which is all about trying to increase people's access to veg. Um, and when we launched Peas Please back in 2017, we know that sort of 7.2% of the weight of an average shopping basket was composed of, of vegetables. And that is all types of veg from, you know, veg and ready meals to your fresh veg. Um, and so 7.2%, arguably still far too low. Um, but the last time we looked at that data last year, um, that had actually fallen to just below 7%. And, and those sound like, like teeny tiny little changes. But I think, you know, at a population level, those are potentially quite significant shifts. Um, you know, we know that households are more likely to prioritize, um, you know, more filling cheaper calories when budgets are tight. And fruit and veg are obviously much more expensive on a calorie per calorie basis. They're a much kind of riskier purchase if you're, for example, feeding a family and you don't want it to go in the bin. Um, and actually what our last um, food insecurity survey in January showed us is that if your food's insecure, um, you were much, much more likely to report buying less fruit, veg and fish. So, you know, really healthy foods um, than if you were food secure. So uh, pretty much over half of our sample um, that we surveyed in January who were living with food insecurity said they were having to buy less of fruit, veg and fish, which is obviously really, really concerning. Definitely. Do you think that there is a responsibility perhaps of retailers within marketing to promote more healthier but affordable fruit and vegetable options do you think that there could be more done in that area to show people that they can uh, there are options that are affordable within the fruit and vegetable category yeah absolutely so I mean I think um you know for example tint is a great example I think the perception people often have is that it's sort of not as good but actually, as I'm sure a lot of people listening are aware, you know, tinned or frozen fruit and veg, they can have a lower price point, but be nutritionally equivalent. So I think there's opportunities to promote those sorts of fruit and veg. And I think, you know, we know from the broken plate report that it's it's like less than 1% of all ad spend goes on fruit and veg. And that compares to, you know, over a third of ad spend going on what we describe as discretionary foods, so, you know, high in fat, salt, sugar. Um, and so we're totally out of balance there you know we need to we need to increase the the spend that's going towards promoting healthier categories to really kind of shift those wider social and cultural norms and boost the appeal of fruit and veg definitely and just building on that so over to you shona my next question is one that i'm sure that's been debated for a long time and that's you know is it actually pricier to consume a healthy diet and you know, I was looking at um, the report uh, last week and obviously we know that healthy foods are twice as expensive per calorie as healthy foods. But there are also you know, cheaper, healthy options like you mentioned, Rebecca, like canned uh, vegetables, beans and fruit. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this show now and perhaps whether there are any barriers to eating healthy foods. 
Yeah, so the broken plate report that we um, published the other week is um, looks at lots of different uh, aspects of the system to see whether it does actually help people to eat well. And that includes looking at things like the price and the affordability, but also looking at other issues. So like advertising, as Rebecca mentioned, but also the availability of healthy foods. Um, so as you say, the report looks at... Um, one of the metrics the report looks at is the cost of healthy relative to unhealthy foods. And um, this is analysis that was done by the University of Cambridge on government data. And what that showed is, as you said, the, the healthier foods were over twice as expensive on average per calorie as the less healthy foods. Um, and what we've also seen is that price differential has been consistent for several years now. And then in the cost of living crisis, we've seen prices go up um, and the price of the healthy and the less healthy foods have gone up at a similar rate, but in terms of absolute cost, so the healthier foods are now costing 176 more per thousand calories than they did two years ago. Whereas in comparison, the less healthy foods are only costing 76p more for less healthy foods. And so um, those healthier foods have increased in price a lot more um, by that measure than than the other ones. And so it makes them a sort of harder option for people who are struggling to afford food. So, um, and also all this data doesn't take into account any of the kind of buy one, get one free offers or the multi-buys or anything like that. So in reality, it's actually an even bigger discrepancy than, than that data is indicating. Um, so it is definitely an issue with less healthy food being um, a cheaper option and therefore people are naturally going to gravitate towards those cheaper options when they're on a tight budget. Um, and then, I mean, there are also other factors to take into account as well when it comes to a healthy diet. So, for example, um, if you want to sort of prepare a healthy meal from scratch, you're going to need to pay for either the electricity or the gas to cook that, to turn the oven on. Um, you're going to have to have a fridge that's turned on to be able to store healthy ingredients and fresh ingredients. Um, and in the context of the cost of living crisis, when we've seen those electricity and gas prices go really high, it's become a lot more difficult for people on very low incomes to do that. And it's much cheaper for them to buy pre-prepared foods that either don't require any cost in preparation or can just be bunged in the microwave, which is a much cheaper way of cooking. But unfortunately, it means what they're eating is not as likely to be as healthy as it would be. Um, and then another thing is, as Rebecca said uh, about fruit and veg, you know, it's when people are on a tight income, they don't want any of the food they buy to go to waste. They have to make the most of every bit of it. And those are foods which can you know, easily go off. Or also, if you've got young children, you're trying to get them introduced to healthy foods. Um, quite often, you just want to give them something that you know they're going to eat, you know is going to be filling, you know is a safe option. And that makes it harder for them to sort of um, introduce different fruit and veg, particularly when weaning and stuff like that. It gives them less opportunity to become accustomed to those those foods. So it can impact in lots of different um, ways. Um, one of the other issues is around the sort of convenience of unhealthy food and the availability of it. You know, lots of people are living very busy lives, have limited time, have limited bandwidth, and they're just going to go for what is readily available, what's in front of them, you know. And quite often that is not the healthy option. So 
for example, one of the things we look at in Broken Play is um, the sugar content of foods that are marketed to children. Specifically, we look at yogurts and breakfast cereals. And the reason we look at these is because these are foods which um, parents quite often are giving to their children with this belief that, you know, that's a healthy food, right? It's not a chocolate bar. It's not a packet of crisps. You think it's going to be a healthy option. And they don't realize that the hidden sugars are one of the main ingredients for a lot of those products. So um, this was work that was done by um, Action on Sugar for Broken Play. And what they found is that only 7% of breakfast cereals and 8% of yogurts marketed to children are actually low in sugar. So that means if a parent is going into a supermarket, looking at all the options on the shelf, actually finding an option which is healthy is not the easiest thing and in order to find it you have to know how to read the the labels you have to sort of be able to you know process all of that information have the time to do that while your child is screaming for the one that has the bright colored packaging on it it's a really difficult challenge for parents and you know it's quite often it's not that they don't want to give their child the healthy option it's just that there's all these barriers that make it so much more more difficult um one of the other things we look at in broken plate is um just the the uh, abundance of fast food outlets so one in four places to buy food in England are um, fast food takeaways and if you live in a more deprived area there's actually a higher density than in the least deprived areas as well so you know if that's what is in your local area that's readily available for you to buy it's a quick option you know the children are going to eat it that's you know going to be your go-to option and quite often foods and takeaways are just not healthy um so Price is definitely a barrier, but there are also all these other factors which are just making it increasingly more difficult for people to eat in a way which is healthy, despite the fact that they quite often will will want to. So our environment is having a huge influence, is what I'm hearing. Um, so yeah, obviously, many of us as professionals in the, in the nutrition industry and government have a responsibility to, to try and rectify some of those things. And Many of us are aware of the Eat Well Guide. So as dietitians, nutritionists, nutrition professionals, we are always talking about the Eat Well Guide. And a lot of, I'd say, um, audiences are kind of bored, I think, of the Eat Well Guide. But it's the the principles remain the same. And, you know, I'm always still talking about the Eat Well Guide because it is just a very reliable source of information and it's a very clear guide. But Shona, do you think that the eWell Guide is actually achievable across various socioeconomic statuses? Yeah, so I mean, the, the eWell Guide is a very useful guideline as to what people should be eating for a healthy diet. Um, I appreciate people might be bored of it, but the fact is what's healthy hasn't really changed significantly. So exactly. um, it's, you know, it's definitely a very good indicator of what we should be eating. Um, and obviously government recommends that's what we should be eating. So they recognise that as well. But um as you said in the in the intro to the podcast, um, the poorest fifth of the population would have to spend over half of their disposable income on food to afford that Eat Well Guide. Um, and interestingly, that's actually increased from the year before when it was at 43%. So that's, again, where we're seeing the impact of the cost of living crisis, making it harder for people to afford food. And um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just not realistic for people to spend that amount of money on food and that's the real crux of the issue is that people don't have sufficient incomes to um, cover these high food costs that are needed for a healthy diet and a lot of the people in that um, poorest bit of the population will either be people on benefits who are unable to work either for 
the health issues or you know other reasons a lot of people on benefits are actually in work as well and just have benefits to top that up um and for people who a lot of people in that poorest uh income quintile who are in work will be on minimum wage jobs and the fact is that the minimum wage levels and the benefit levels are just not set a sufficient amount to give people the money they need to afford the essentials including food and so you know as you said the environment's not set up to help us but also people aren't getting sufficient incomes anyway um and so that's another area where government need to really be reassessing how they set those levels and taking into account okay how much does it cost for people to eat what they should be eating um and making sure they're getting an income that supports them to to do that so you know quite often it's not that people don't know how to eat healthy or they don't know want to eat they don't quite often it's not that people don't know how to eat healthy or it's not that they don't want to eat healthy it's they simply can't afford it and that's what we really need to see change okay thank you so let's think about our audience for a second um rebecca how can dietitian and nutrition professionals help promote a healthier more sustainable diet that actually is achievable, but doesn't break the bank? So I think as as we've sort of touched on, um, there are kind of types of food and tools which we can encourage people to to sort of follow that can help, you know, eat healthier and more sustainable diets, for example. Um, you know, I think we'd all be agreed that more fruit and veg is a good thing. Frozen, tinned, all off the quite good routes to potentially doing that with the kind of lower price level. Um, beans, massive fan of beans they're a great affordable source of protein we know that nobody is eating enough and that's true across all socioeconomic groups um so there's huge opportunity i think for you know dietitians and nutrition professionals to promote beans um particularly if we can kind of swap out a little bit of meat and replace that with pulses that's um going to have sustainability benefits as much as health ones um but um i i probably challenge the assumption generally that this is just you know something that we can sort of educate individuals about or you know that this is a crisis individuals can just sort of budget cook their way out of um you know i think things like cooking from scratch or sort of bulk buying and then you know making shopping lists etc they're all sort of useful tools that we can you know people can use to to eat healthily on a budget but i think we need to acknowledge just how hard if you are on a on a really tight budget or on benefits or um you know universal income uh, sorry, benefits or, or universal credit, or or you are just kind of really feeling the squeeze, it's very, very hard at the minute. And those additional barriers make it even more challenging. Um, you know, for example, you know, do you have access to a um, to a functional kitchen? Lots of people don't. For example, if you're living in shared or social housing, um, can you afford to turn the oven on or the freezer um, for to buy cheaper frozen veg? And we hear more and more that people are, increasing numbers of people are turning off their their fridges and their freezers to save money on the cost of energy you know these things are all interconnected um and i think there's also this kind of you know just cook from scratch um you know budget cook your way out of things but actually there was a great report that came out a few years ago now from a house of lords committee and um they estimated what the cost was of a sort of middle class store cupboard so you know when you when you have those kind of budget recipes they often don't factor in what well, a the cost of energy but b the sort of the kind of ingredients that there's a kind of assumption that you already own like salt pepper oil and so this report estimated that that cost of a middle class store cupboard was around 15 pounds you know up front that's a lot of cost that a lot of people can't afford 
That's really insightful. Thank you. So thinking about the Food Foundation as a whole, obviously you both work for the Food Foundation and we know that Food Foundation is a really important um, organisation that works hard behind the scenes on policy and initiatives to tackle food insecurity. Shona, can you tell us a bit more about the Food Foundation and perhaps also touch on some of the campaigns you're working on, such as Children's Right to Food and Peace Please, which I know you mentioned earlier in our conversation. Um, that would be great just to hear a bit more about, about you know, what you do uh, in your role. Yeah, so the Food Foundation is a charity. We've been around for about eight years now, and our work is all about trying to um, influence policy and food businesses to um, encourage them to um, help people to to eat well. And, you know, a lot of the work I've talked about so far is um, sort of evidence that we try and, and gather to really explain the problem to them and, and help them to see that the challenges that people are facing and kind of take accountability for helping people to eat well. Um, and also just making um, evidence-based recommendations on what needs to to happen and really trying to ground it in what the facts are saying is going to make an improvement to to people's diets and their health and the sort of broader impacts that that can have on on society as well. Um, We do have um, a particular focus on, on children just because they are such a high risk group you know we all know how important nutrition is in those early years and um what an impact that can have on on children's health so you know if you have obesity as a child you're more likely to grow up to be living with obesity as well um and also just how it affects children's relationship with food you know you hear stories from children who have experienced food insecurity as a child and um how that um really damages that relationship with food and gives them lifelong sort of eating issues and and challenges around food that are affected by that kind of psychological impact as well so it's so important that everything is done to make sure children can can get the food that they need um in those earlier years of of life so we do a lot of work with with policymakers but also with food businesses as well so for example we've just launched a new initiative um, which is called our kids food guarantee which is calling on businesses to and do things to help children to eat well. And it includes things like um, making sure fruit and veg are available at discounted prices and putting offers on on staple foods that people actually need, like bread and milk and those kind of things, rather than on the sort of unhealthier foods that people um, don't actually need to be eating and aren't going to be helping their their health. Um, So it's, um, you know, there's lots of things that food businesses can be doing to to make little tweaks that are going to make a big difference to to people's lives um, and then our children's right to food campaign um, is a um, campaign we've been running for quite a few years now and it's all about making sure children in the UK can access and afford good food and calling on government to tackle children's food insecurity um, this all started with a big inquiry we did where we spoke to you know healthcare professionals frontline staff everyone about um, you know lots of experts working in this area about what how children's food insecurity was playing out in the UK and also speaking to children themselves. I think this is the first time that children have been systematically and directly spoken to about their experiences of food insecurity. Um, And um, I think at the time, children's food insecurity was much less recognised and there was much less public awareness of it than there is now, despite it being a, a big problem even before the pandemic. But I think what the pandemic did was it really brought the issue of children's food insecurity into the spotlight, um, particularly when the schools um, closed down during the lockdowns and it left children who would normally have been receiving free school meals with no provision for 
um, lunch and government had to sort of step in and start providing vouchers for those children. Um, and that sort of really shone a light on just how dependent lots of children were on getting a meal at school for their sort of nutritious, healthy meal for the day because they couldn't depend on on definitely getting that food at home. And um, I think that's when um, Marcus Rashford, who is uh, the English footballer who plays for England, for anyone who doesn't know, he um, wrote a letter to the Prime Minister during the pandemic, sort of calling for those food vouchers for children to continue into the summer holidays because they'd said they were going to stop them. And, you know, he himself had received free school meals as a child and he you know, really understood what a lifeline they were for families and how stressful it was for parents struggling to put food on the table. And so I think he was a really sort of powerful voice that um, really brought a lot of strength to the sort of campaigning on children's food in the UK. And, um, you know, I mean, he was successful in getting government to extend those vouchers into the holidays. So that was a really big um, sort of success and really showed that it is possible to make change in this area. Um and in his letter, he wrote to the Prime Minister, he actually referenced our food and security surveys that we were talking about earlier. And so that's how we kind of got in touch with him and started working with him and his team more closely on how to campaign for these longer term commitments to improve children's diets and improve their access to um, food. And so I think that's um, that's made a really big difference to the kind of narrative in this country around these issues as well. Um, and um, so there were sort of three government schemes that he was calling for improvements on, one of which was free school meals. Another one was around getting um, a holiday provision for children on free school meals to make sure they could get food through all the holidays and was very successful in that. There's now a programme that's rolled, rolled out across England uh, with funding to, to support those children. Um, and... Free school meals is an area that we're continuing to campaign on because it's still still a big issue. Um, and I mean, to be honest, the need is kind of stronger than ever in the cost of living crisis. It's probably, you know, children's food and security levels are higher now than they were in the pandemic. So the need for improvements to the scheme has actually gotten bigger. Um, and we've been calling for um, free school meals to be expanded to, to more children. So... Currently, there's this really strict eligibility criteria on free school meals where a household has to be earning less than £7,400 a year in order to get free school meals. And this means that there's about 800,000 children living in poverty who, despite living in poverty, don't get a free school meal. And so they're missing out on that really vital nutritional safety net. Um, and, the, you know, so it's a real problem for these children who fall just outside of their eligibility criteria and I mean we've heard so many stories about you know children just you know hiding in the playground or trying to hide their lunchbox so that their peers can't see that they haven't got anything to eat for lunch that day or you know parents saying they're having to go without food themselves so that they can give food to their children um, or you know making decisions about turning the heating on or sending their children to school with a packed lunch and um, it's just been a really difficult situation for these families who are really you know there's not there's you know they're really just not getting the support that they need and you can only imagine the stress and anxiety that can cause for a parent when they're doing everything they can to sort of be able to provide food for their children and just not able to to do so so you know expanding free school meals to more children would mean they're kind of guaranteed this hot nutritious um, meal every day and it would just take that pressure off those those tight family budgets so that's an area where we've been doing a huge amount of 
of work recently and really calling for for more action and that's included things like um, sending letters to government from health professionals and we've had various organizations like um, working across different areas so nurses doctors dietitians dentists all signing up and showing their support for these issues because I think everyone recognizes the health benefits that can come from making sure children get a nutritious meal um Rebecca did you want to speak about these please Yeah, just to, to add, I think, um, you know, as well as our, our work on food insecurity and children's food, uh, we try and do a lot to actually, you know, advocate for making it easier for people to access healthier foods. Um, so Peas Please is our, our programme which aims to boost the amount of vegetables out there and make it easier for everybody to access them. Um, so we have pledges from over 100 businesses who've sort of pledged to do more to promote or sell or serve more veg. Um, and we are at the minute sort of planning for the future of Peas Please. So watch this space in terms of um, the support that we always really appreciate that we get from nutrition professionals and, and dietitians in terms of, of helping us with our, our veg mission. Thank you. And I'm sure there are many of our listeners that would love to get behind these, these initiatives more so if they're not already. So, Rebecca, how can they get involved? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, use your voice, um, you know, whether that's writing to your, your MP um, about sort of issues, um, including free school meals. Um, you know, if you're working in industry, what can you do with your organisation to make sure that, you know, healthier foods that hopefully are also priced um, reasonably, you know, are promoted, are there, are accessible? Um, you know, what can you do there? Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, we're always, as I said, very grateful for the the support that healthcare professionals give us, even if just to, you know, share our content and share our evidence, you know, please do use the evidence that we produce as part of the conversations and meetings you're having. It's all, it, you know, it, every little helps. <laughs> Definitely. And Shona, just to quickly touch on the National Food Strategy, you are a consultant on uh, this report. So could you give us an overview of the ways that it addresses whether you have to be wealthy to eat well? Yeah, so the National Food Strategy was an independent review commissioned by government to look at the whole food system. So from farm to fork, um, covering, you know, health, environment, climate, trade, looking at all these issues in the round and working out what we need to do in the UK to to make a better food system. And um, our executive director at the Food Foundation was the chief independent advisor um, on the review. And so I was very fortunate to get to work on it through that. And one of the um, chapters of the report that we did a lot of work on was looking at inequalities. And the report really explains how um, how we're seeing much higher levels of um, obesity and diet-related disease in lower income groups and um, the reasons for that being around some of the things we've already talked about around the environment, just not supporting them to to eat well. And so, um, you know, while you don't necessarily need to be the wealthiest, you do need to have a certain level of, of um, income to be able to have um, that healthy diet and have those healthy outcomes. Um, and so that's why the National Food Strategy made quite a few recommendations around tackling inequalities. So specifically, they made ones around um, free school meals that were in line with the ones I was talking about. They also made recommendations on providing um, 
food in the holidays for children and free school meals and um, around also the Healthy Start scheme, which is a, a scheme that provides um, vouchers to low income families to buy fruit and veg and milk and things like that. And the National Food Strategy made recommendations on improving all three of those schemes. And that actually was the basis for Marcus Rashford's um, campaigning work. So I think that was incredibly important in um having those evidence-based recommendations for calling for improvements um and really made the case for kind of why and how government need to do well to help people but you know particularly low-income children to be able to get um healthy food so it was an incredibly important report from from that perspective as well as other perspectives as well brilliant sounds like a really exciting opportunity to be involved in so just to finish up um, I'd love to hear from both of you on your takeaway messages and what you'd like to leave listeners with at the end of the episode. Shona, shall we start with you? Yeah, I mean, thank you for having us. It's been great to be on. Um, I think the sort of thing I would like to leave listeners with is just um, hopefully that sort of awareness around these wider barriers that we've talked about today, particularly when working with kind of patients or clients or, um, it, you know, in the food industry or whatever kind of role you might be doing, thinking about how these issues might be affecting people's ability to eat well. And it's not, you know, just a case of people not eating a healthy diet because they lack willpower or because they don't know how to. It's There's all these other factors um, that are affecting their ability to eat well. And that's what we really need to be tackling and I think healthcare professionals nutritionists and dietitians are such respected voices in this space and really have a powerful voice because they're trained professionals who understand these issues and so you know it's really important that they're involved in this advocating to government to change this situation and address these issues and so you know as Rebecca said just please do um, get behind all these campaigns that are trying to help people to eat well because it really can make such a difference um Rebecca over to you yeah I think I think for me the sort of parting shot is just we all need to acknowledge that the cost of living crisis is having a huge impact on a large number of families and I think there's a danger that as sort of inflation starts to ease that it sort of drops off the front pages or becomes less of a focus but the cost of living crisis is having a very real impact on people's shopping behavior and we know food insecurity which has skyrocketed and that will be having a health you know and nutrition effect that we're going to see sort of play out in coming years particularly for children so i think as a as a sort of community of health and nutrition professionals we just need to make sure that people don't forget the impact the cost of living crisis is having on on food and health and nutrition thank you both that's brilliant so a huge thank you to Shona and Rebecca for coming onto the podcast today and digging deeper into how we can all be working towards a healthier and more affordable, accessible and sustainable food system. A huge thank you also to Nuoutra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting. Our next episode of the Dietitian Cafe will be out soon. But in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD2B Dietitian Cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the Dietitian Cafe. See you next time.